got done building something yourself, Kyle. You built a wine shelf from a wine crate. I did, yeah. Um, I I didn't do very much assembly, but I I talked to the guy at the wine store who was just kind of like using this old wine crate as like a a stand to put things on, and it looked pretty beat up. So I was like, "Hey, um, are you using this?" He was like, uh, yeah, I'm putting things on it. And I was like, can I have it? (laughs) And he was confused, but he did end up giving it to me, which I was very happy about. Wow. This is the most vagabond intro without even knowing it. Like you took something that clearly looked beat up and said, I want to take this and use it for myself. And the person's like, wait, do I have a choice on whether we can make this trade? And you're like, not really. (laughs) I'm out of here. I'm, I have it. <laughs> so you took it home and you put it on your wall. Crafted which is it, if you will. Su- supported on your – yeah, crafted it. But it's supported on your wall by what? It looks like ski poles in this picture, but I can't imagine that's the truth. No, I did not repurpose ski poles to make a shelf, um, although that does sound really sweet. No, it's it's these um, kind of industrial like farmhouse bracket things. Oh, okay. uh, but they are just like basically poles, but you, uh, they're mounted by like, you like screw them into a, like a little, a snowbank, a, like a snowbank on the wall. Yeah, yeah. I understand. Okay. Yeah. We have to keep the apartment quite chilly now. So, uh, but it's worth it. Hashtag worth it. That'll be nice <laughs> in the summer. Did you guys oh, see yeah. the, uh, root box that someone on our discord made? Like the homemade copy of root they made? Was it radical? Was that who it was? I think so. Yeah. It was like. They, like, screen-printed, like, the wooden box they made custom. And they have, like, all the faction boxes are custom-printed. It's so good-looking. So it's a series of boxes. It's one gigantic wooden box that has, like, the root logo with all the colors screen-printed on it that looks amazing. And then you take the lid off, and inside there's uh, some components in, like, a side shelf. But then, like, individual wooden boxes for each faction that are slotted into this box. It just looks so profesh and just beautiful. It's beautifully made. I didn't notice that they had the new two, the two new factions in there as well already. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he he was saying on the Discord that uh that they the hirelings might not be able to fit in there all the new hirelings. <laughs> but other than that and like I love how practical it is, too, because I've looked up a lot of root organizers, and I've never really pulled the trigger because I know this game keeps getting bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. so it's just yeah. going to get outdated really quick. But a lot of them like have you store all the cards in the game like together, and that just doesn't make sense. I want the eerie cards with the eerie pieces. Right, oh, like I don't yeah, want to have to be able strange. to fish out all these. Like, where are the quests in this yeah. big thing of cards? Like, that's not practical for setting up root. But struck me is that all the faction boxes are the same kind of size or the same width. Yeah. At least that's that they appear when looking at them kind of side on mm-hmm. when they're like slotted into the big box. But uh, there's one faction that just has like way more things going on than like any other faction, like more pieces and cards and just so many elements. And uh, that's going to be the subject of today's podcast episode. And that, my friends, is... Le Vagabond. Wow, wow, wow. 
<laughs> yeah, we're talking about the Vagabond. We're talking about Roots Pikachu, okay? This is the, like, mascot of the game in a lot of ways, right? Is this, like, little raccoon with a sword that is going against entire armies in this woodland. Is he the mascot of the game? Because he, he kind of feels like the singularity. Like, he feels like one, like, other part of this, whereas everything... Everybody else is an army or a faction of of group of people. He is just a jerk running around in the woodland, right? I've seen people make the alignment chart for root factions. And, uh, you know, you'll have like, you know, authoritarian or, you know, sort of like individualist on, on the whatever side of the spectrum. You've got like the cats and the birds. They occupy these different areas. The lizards are obviously like far, far to the left and in the kind of collective side. Um, but then most most of the time when I see this chart, I see the vagabond as like true neutral. And I, I just, yeah, I want to say like, is that true? If anarchy is true neutral, right? Which I guess it is. It's like in no side because chaos shall reign. Yeah. Vagabond's <laughs> just looking out for number one. Yeah. That's the end of the thing. It's like, I don't think that the Vagabond is a hero in any way. And I think the Woodland would be better if he was ran into the forest every two or three turns. (laughs) (laughs) I think because the Vagabond actively assists and harms all three players at the table every turn. I mean, not literally every turn, but like can do all of those things in a turn or a series of turns. That qualifies them as like the most chaotic of all of them. So I would say anarchy in some way, right? Oh, yeah. I guess so. I mean, it's sort of like ultimate self-interest, I think, characterizes the Vagabond because they can take actions that appear to be helpful, but all of it is incredibly self-serving. I mean, to to an extent, it's a race to 30 points, like all factions are going to be doing self-serving things. Um, but it really feels like the Vagabond it just like is boiled down to, you know, self-dealing at an essentialized level. <laughs> I- Yeah, and I think its theme is so deceptive. I think you're right, Kyle. Like, the idea of, like, hey, I found you a bird supporter, and we know how helpful those are. I'm going to give you this bird guy. He's yours now, okay? And all I need is a tea, just a cup of tea, and that decision will cost you the game. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get into it, guys. It's nice when it's framed that way, though, right, Sam? Like, if it's framed the other way, which is, give me that tea, here's a rabbit. Like, it's... (laughs) Just you know, predatory hospitality. Yeah, (laughs) it's on the ear of the beholder. (laughs) All right, so let's meet the vagabond guys, the controversial edge case loving Pikachu of Root. Uh, Like we were talking about, the vagabond lures us in with this like unique thing, right? He's just one guy in an army game. You could just also be one guy, but he will quickly reveal them. They will quickly reveal themselves to be the ultimate. Murder MacGyver is what I'm going to call the Vagabond, okay? They can they have a lot of tools in their toolkit to murder you, and they they can do it out of basically anything. They can hobble together an attack out of essentially nothing, okay? It's a great analogy with MacGyver. They can block entire armies with nothing more than a gold coin and a couple of spare boots. And uh, in this episode, because this is one of two episodes where we are going to be covering the Vagabond. This episode, we're going to try to keep it as as normal as possible like it's any other faction. And then in the next episode, we'll kind of get into the Vagabond meta and uh, kind of why everybody has turned 
they're back on Roots Pikachu. All right. I will say, I'm a little surprised that we haven't done the Peter Jackson thing. It would be like, it has to be nine episodes. <laughs> we have right, to do- one for each vagabond. Yeah. <laughs> I think we reserve the right also to like revisit this one in particular simply because of the meta surrounding it as well, which is a whole other conversation. Yeah. It is, and I'm really excited for that conversation, um, so look forward to that. But today, we're just going to be talking about, you know, just approaching it from a very like feet on the ground kind of almost naive point of view of like who is the vagabond how do you play well with the vagabond how do you win with the vagabond and uh let's let's start with uh figuring out who this little critter is sam in your in your best reading voice can you give us a little bit of the faction background some of the theme stuff yeah, absolutely. So this is lifted right from the root RPG, but kind of uniquely the root RPG uh is everyone is a vagabond. So um, the thematic overview is a little harder to find here. So this is what I've got. Miscreants, outcasts, strangers, rebels, mercenaries, and vigilantes. Vagabonds (laughs) have always been a part of the woodland. Those who weren't safe enough, accepted enough, or satisfied enough to settle down in a clearing. (laughs) I've always been here. (laughs) (laughs) Those who didn't, couldn't, or wouldn't commit themselves to a particular faction. Those who were capable, skilled, and morally flexible. (laughs) Yeah, sure, I'll build this uh, this cabinet for you, but... uh... (laughs) You have to pay me in children. (laughs) (laughs) Vagabond, quote-unquote, is an all-encompassing term for this kind of denizen, an individual who moves around from clearing to clearing, taking an odd, dangerous jobs, and likely causing trouble wherever they go. The vagabond is highly skilled compared to the average citizen. You don't survive for this long in this lifestyle unless you're skilled or protected by another skilled vagabond. Please, please, Mr. Vagabond. My shed, it's so broken. Oh, no one goes back there anymore. If only somebody could give a speech. And then they usually have certain moral flexibility. I always feel like that's like moral flexibility is like like on those like true crime shows and everything goes black and white and like goes tilted for a second. It's like moral <laughs> flexibility. Who is the vagabond really? <laughs> a willingness to perform jobs for different opposing factions or to perform jobs that other denizens might find distasteful. <laughs> What I like Please, about this... Please, the, uh, the splinters! <laughs> Clean out the septic tank, Vagabond. <laughs> it is my quest. Um, I found a hammer in there! <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so what I love about this thematic breakdown is it does show you how the Vagabonds are a little bit like, I'm ready to get my hands dirty. Because I think, like, you can, you can really be... You think like, oh, he's just a little squirrel, you know, going through the forest, aiding people and giving quests. But it is important to remember that this creature wants nothing more than to destroy everything you've ever loved in this game. You're giving him a real uh, action movie star vibe. Big muscly Duke Nukem kind of sound, right? Yeah. Jake, if you can defend an entire bird army by just deflecting things off of your sacks, all right? (laughs) Then, then you get to be an action movie star, okay? 
I, I'm right, so, getting kind of like a Liam Neeson sort of like I have a very uh, particular yeah. set of skills. Like I have a very particular set of items. <laughs> he says, drinking the tea out of the kettle. <laughs> what a yeah, where's your cup? Um, all right, God, that is pretty badass. <laughs> it must be scalding. <laughs> so let's talk about what the vagabond when you're playing the board game of Rue, what it's got, okay? Because it it has some very unique things and it's missing a lot of things from a normal root faction. For instance, our reach is five. We are definitely an insurgent faction. We can't even rule clearings because we just have one pawn. What's, what's a pawn? (laughs) So we, uh, even if a clearing is empty of, uh, pieces or enemy pieces, we will never rule a clearing. That is correct. Got it. We will just occupy clearings. We are not a warrior. Therefore, we do not contribute to rule. Uh, Also, the Vagabond has nine different character cards. I looked this up. That's what they're called. They're called character cards, not Vagabond classes, like I like to say. Um, These character cards uh, have different starting items and each have a different ability. Most of them involve exhausting your torch, which is uh, the item that is unique to the Vagabond. Uh, and all the torch does is allow you to explore ruins, which we're going to cover a lot, and uh, use your special torch power. And uh, complete quests. I think that that's oh, right. pretty much the only three things that the torch can do, which makes it insanely valuable, especially early in the game. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you can't ever craft a torch or find one elsewhere does make it one of the very strange kind of like one direction elements in a root game. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kind of like the cats getting board wiped or, you know, anything else. Like if you pitch your torch, uh, if you run over your satchel limit, like you can't get it back ever. I remember um, uh, when we first got Root and I got the Riverfolk expansion like right away. Like we played Root one time and I was like, got it, getting everything I can. And and I remember I was playing the Scoundrel and used the torch ability to like delete a clearing. We'll talk about this ability in a bit. Um, But I used that torch and it costs you your torch for the whole game. And I was like, no worries, I'll just craft another. And then I was like, who's got the torch card? And I just didn't understand that there are no more torches. You have oh, one and only one. Oh, no. So you, with, with abilities like that, you got to be super careful. Cool. Makes sense. All right. So an, a couple other things we got to worry about here. We have a satchel. Okay. We have like some item tracks on the side of our board, but we also have a satchel where most of our items go. Okay. And this satchel has a limit at the start of the game, of six items. You can have six items in your satchel. If you get a bag, which will go onto your little item tracks on the side, that satchel limit will increase. Uh, two items for each bag you have. Um, there are a few uh, Vagabond characters that uh, will really need to pay attention to the satchel limit because your early game, uh, you can get unlucky and run into some satchel problems. We'll cover those when we kind of go through the list of Vagabond characters. Um, in addition to this, we have a relationship chart, is what it is called. Okay, um, this relationship chart uh, kind of shows what your status is with the other factions, whether you're allied with them, uh, as you get friendlier towards them, or once you decide to go hostile towards them. Um, essentially, you will get uh, points for aiding factions and increasing your uh, relationship status to them. Okay. You get points every time you cross a new threshold, which means you've aided them more times in a single turn. 
Um, and one thing I love about the relationship chart is, uh, you know, it just is more pieces for the Vagabond to keep track of. But each faction actually has like a little kind of like unique um, t- tile uh, with a little bit slightly different art than on, you know, like any other piece in the game. Um, notably, the the meeple design for Root Digital, for instance, for like the, the cat silhouette that gets used from the top down view uh, is drawn from the Vagabond's cat tile for their mm. relationship chart, which makes me think that, especially given that we see the base game three uh, Vagabond characters in the kind of menu of Root Digital, my big like conspiracy theory is that Root Digital is all from the perspective of the Vagabond. Wow. <laughs> wow. Direwolf Digital in the pockets of big Vagabond. (laughs) Uh, Direwolf, if you want to sponsor an episode, we will totally take all of this back. But until then, you are in the pockets of Big Vagabond. Yeah, we will await the answer, if there is one. (laughs) Yeah, we'll email you after this recording and say, I'm going to put this clip in here, in this podcast, if you don't sponsor us. That's the most Vagabond thing we could do. Just openly threaten somebody with their... with a threat. Friendly blackmail. <laughs> <laughs> and listeners, because you're hearing this, you know they said no. <laughs> I think they could have guessed. All right. <laughs> the other ability that I want to touch on before we get into the Vagabond character cards is the ability Slip, which I think is so, so powerful, especially specifically to the Vagabond. Uh, We'll talk about why Slip is so important, but Slip is at the beginning of your bird song, you get a free move, essentially. And this move doesn't care about anything. But Sam, what about a Corvid snare where pieces can't be moved from that clearing? Doesn't matter. You can slip out of it. Okay? Also, you can slip into a forest, which will allow you to heal your items, or maybe, actually, depending on the map, uh, allow you to move to a different clearing more efficiently. Uh, But... In general, Slip is very powerful. Kyle, you, what, what's your opinion on Slip? Oh, it's so good. <laughs> slip is its one of those things where it takes the Vagabond from great to, like, best in the game, in my mm. opinion. Like, mm. it is the one... It's one of the mechanics that makes the Vagabond basically unstoppable, Mm-hmm. Because you just, the mobility of the Vagabond is its greatest asset. And we'll talk about this later, but the Vagabonds that have a lot of mobility tend to be scarier. Slip just helps you go from like one corner where you're not doing anything and threatening nobody to being like suddenly in the most important clearing, deleting everyone from the map. <laughs> and the, Slip also, because everyone knows that the Vagabond has this ability, it just like fuzzies the math on where a Vagabond can go. Slip has kind of an interesting characteristic in that it's unlimited, uh, whereas, like, you know, you exhaust a boot to move as the Vagabond. But if you're hostile with a faction, if they have any warriors in the clearing that you want to move to, you have to exhaust an extra boot. And that can make your, you know, your ability to move around the map very, very limited, very slow. And, uh, and Slip just lets you um, kind of get past that limitation rather easily and uh makes it extremely powerful so yeah slip oh it's so good (laughs) (laughs) absolutely 
All right, guys, let's get into the nine Vagabond character cards. Let's go through these in chronological order. The first Vagabond ever born was the Thief. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, in, in the base game, we get three Vagabonds. First one we're going to talk about is the Thief. Now, this is the one you're going to see on the cover of the game, okay? The cute raccoon, okay? The Vagabond starts with four items. This Vagabond, they have a boot, a torch, a tea, and a sword. All right, very, very good starting items. And their ability here is when they exhaust their torch, they can steal, take a random card from another player or from a player in your clearing. The Thief is the only Vagabond with a T as a starting item. Yes. Uh, which is a huge advantage. This is sort of offset by the fact that their Vagabond ability is pretty situational and a little bit like there's plenty of games that you'll play as the thief and never use that ability. Yep. But the fact that you start with a T means that from the get go, you're able to quest on turn one. You are protected a little bit from item RNG uh, from exploring because you can draw more cards from questing and refresh everything still. So I, I tend to think of the thief as like maybe not one of the best, but one of the better vagabond classes. Absolutely. What do, think? I think, what do you think, Sam? Yeah, it's so versatile because of that T, right? One of the things we're going to talk about throughout this guide is how important that T is. And the thief already starts with it. Um, the thief also starts with a sword, which means they're not undefended at the beginning of the game. So uh, no one's going to take a, a, a an undefended shot at you, which is nice. And uh, the T goes on our item tracks, which means we have three more uh, items room in our satchel you'll see that some of these other vagabond classes all of their starting items are in their satchel which means when they explore and are getting free items they're really hoping for a bag coming up soon because otherwise they might lose one um so that is the thief i yeah i i, I think medium high or medium good is how i'd rate <laughs> the thief Real quick, as we're analyzing these, like for from a perspective of someone who is new or even intermediate at the Vagabond and understands that each um, item does a different thing according to the board, right? What are we evaluating within the character beyond just the ability? We're also looking at their starting items. And as you mentioned, Sam, like having those on the track as opposed to in the backpack can be nice. And T is really good. Is there anything else in particular we should be looking out for as a starting item beyond T? Mainly swords. Okay. Um... And the, the other thing to, like, kind of keep an eye on is, I, I mean, honestly, swords and tea are the two things to really, like, focus on. If you start with a crossbow, like, that's handy. You know, there's a couple of <laughs> Vagabond character cards that, you know, give you a crossbow as a starting item, which is, it's fun. But Why it's are you not prioritizing as... those two in the beginning is what I'm asking, I guess. Yeah, um, the sword is, I think, the most important starting item because if you don't have one... You're undefended, and that means that you are subject to an undefended hit mm -hmm. early in the game, you know, like any token or building or anything like that. So, like, right. you know, if you're undefended as the tinker on turn one and the cats attack, like, even if it's only one cat, it can do two hits to you and you can't even hurt the cat. So, starting with the sword just means you're a little bit tougher. You're a little more durable, a little less uh, encouraging, you know, a little less enticing to attack. The, the way I think about it is that like every sword that the Vagabond gets makes them more and more unfriendly to attack. <laughs> the, you know, there's just like another tooth, another fang in their set of teeth. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's horrible. It's like an infestation of swords. <laughs> Speaking of tooths, let's uh, check out our next vagabond character here who packs a little punch right off the bat, and that's the ranger. The ranger, this beautiful wolf with a scar over its eye. Uh, starting items here, we've got a boot, a torch, a crossbow, and a sword. And their torch ability is hideout. They exhaust their torch, and they repair three items, then immediately end daylight. So this is nice. You don't have to slip into the forest to repair all your items. The uh, ranger can kind of do it at the end of their daylight, which is... If you're going to get hit a couple times, you might be able to save yourself a couple trips to the forest with this torch ability. Kyle, how do you rate the ranger? Ranger is in the the same tier as the thief. Medium high. You will use the faction ability yeah. um, in almost every game that you play as the ranger. And starting with a sword and a crossbow, you just like, good luck if the Woodland Alliance is in the game because you're going to be able to snipe one of those warriors and then all their tokens are worth two points for the rest of the game. Like, come on, it's so great. The thing with the ranger is that, it, just like you said, they're a bit satchel limited because uh, all of their starting items start in the satchel. So they can they can easily end up in a situation where they are pitching a boot uh, early in the game. And as we'll end up talking about, like that mobility factor can be huge for the ranger yeah. um, because when they go hostile and start to kind of accumulate points towards the end of the game if they can't move very well um the the rest of the board can react and and make life very hard for the ranger uh so yeah that item explore rng is going to be a big factor but they are very tough and very durable because of hideout yeah all right dare we talk about the tinker <laughs> Okay, <laughs> um, I don't want to get into the whole thing with the Tinker. I'm going to try to treat it like it's any other faction right now, okay? So the Tinker, this adorable beaver, doesn't give me PTSD at all. It It's four starting items, and that is a boot, a torch, a bag, and a hammer. So again, we, we start undefended, but hammer is one of the more unique uh, starting items. There's only one other Vagabond character that starts with a hammer. Uh, and then the torch ability here is you exhaust your torch and then you take a card from the discard pile matching your clearing. Mm. I can't believe I didn't mention hammer earlier as one of the like key starting items because I was that say, is yeah. unbelievably good for uh, the beginning of the game. The tinker, yes, is undefended, but it, in fact, it's funny that like starting with a bag actually like makes the tinker even better it's like kind of funny how that works out because the bag is basically just additional armor it can soak a hit and you know even if you're undefended if a cat attacks you like you can soak a hit with that bag you can soak a hit with that boot and then just repair the boot with the with the hammer so like right yeah the tinker is definitely one of the more infamous vagabond characters but in talking about it from a uh, let's just learn the vagabond point of view it's probably one of the best vagabond character classes that we have um it's at the top of the list for sure it's its ability is one that you will use like four or five times every game my advice for tinker is like the beginning of your turn is the tinker before you do anything else just look through the discard pile and see if uh there's anything you want to use to just break the game in there so <laughs> go for it you're saying the Tinker is largely powerful because they get to look through all the played cards and see if they want to play them yet again because of the day labor ability, right? Not only can they um, fish cards from the discard pile that help them 
out of any jam that they're in, in any game state. If, you know, if they need a, a bird ambush, for example, like they can just easily fish it out of the discard pile if they're feeling threatened. Um, but the fact that they start with a hammer means that it's very hard to keep certain cards out of the grip of the tinker. For example, T or the other hammer. <laughs> um, things that you can craft for one hammer are just the nectar for the tinker. So um, it, it can be very hard to starve this this character card. And I think that's actually what makes it so resilient is even if you do a really, really good job of bashing the tinker, they can still pop out of the forest and get a big leg up. So in terms of like flexibility and durability, I think the the base game Vagabonds still hold up in the, you know, uh, several expansions later, which is a, you know, a great credit to Leader Games. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think as we'll talk about when you're crafting the items as the Vagabond, you're getting points and the item is extra actions for you and it's your hit points. So uh, a Vagabond that starts with a hammer and then can recraft a card they just crafted or even better, somebody else crafted. I didn't even have to, it didn't have, have to cycle through my hand. I can just take it out of the discard pile. Makes this Vagabond, in my opinion, in the top tier. And usually there's a trade-off. With Ranger, the trade-off is that early in the game you can be very fragile. Uh, but once you get rolling, you can kind of endure because of the faction ability. Um, but for the Tinker, like, you can craft swords. You start with a hammer. The ceiling is very high for the Tinker, I think. Yeah. More so than most of the other um, classes. I'm just going to call them classes. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I, and we've got to talk about, you know, obviously the Tinker with the base deck can fish the uh, favor cards out of the discard pile, and they have three hammers to be able to pull them off. Yeah, I think We're not gonna we've get talked about this in the past. That's yeah. probably the, mo- the one of the more broken mechanics of of root in general mm-hmm. um but you're right that that belongs in the meta conversation but there have been several expansions and to this point six more vagabond classes have been released mm-hmm. uh, so let's talk about with the river folk expansion the the new vagabond classes that we got because we got some pretty good ones yeah but let's start with one of them that's not so good let's talk about the vagrant <laughs> um the vagrant's really interesting because the vagrant starts with a coin a torch, and a boot. Now, coin is very interesting, the fact that this uh, character gets extra card draw, but it starts with much... It starts with only two items in the satchel, which just feels a little little dinky when you compare it to, like, the ranger or something, right? The vagrant's torch ability here is you exhaust your torch to initiate a battle in your clearing. You choose both attacker and defender, and you remove pieces for each. This is such a fun sounding ability. <laughs> <laughs> I've never really gotten this to work in in a significant way. Kyle, have you ever tried this? No, I really want to. It just there's usually always like a better choice, I think, in terms of in terms of class. Um, with the new advanced setup, and maybe this is a good time to talk about this, but in the new advanced setup for Vagabond specifically, you're forced to reveal three random classes and then kind of choose between them. And so hopefully we'll see some more play from these kind of uh, less common Vagabonds like the Vagrant. Because you're right, that ability sounds really fun, right? You can in, you can instigate a fight between two other factions and kind of force the game state to change Sometimes in a little bit of a dramatic way, um, without having any skin in the game, 
which is like such a vagabond thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) I can totally see story-wise how like a vagabond could just like, you know, sneak into a clearing and then like, you know, drop some insult in the enemy camp and just say like, oh, this is what they're saying over there. Like you should go teach them a lesson. (laughs) (laughs) He looks much too unstable to be instigating that way. Like look at his face. Like, I feel like he's mid-heart attack right now. So I no. feel like he pretty much is running and just shoving everybody, and then everybody just starts fighting, and he slips out, right? Yeah, he's it's classic, like, guy in the crowd that's like, he called you a jerk, you know? And then, uh, then tense, there's a whole fight that breaks out. Yeah, in a tense situation, just, like, firing the first arrow, and, like, no one knows where it came from, but, yeah. like, now there's a fight. Yeah, or you're standing in a crowd and suddenly there's a dagger in your kidney and you no one knows where it came from, so you assume it was the birds, so you start fighting. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> but I think this is a potentially very powerful ability. Also, I've been I really like aiding. This is one of my favorite parts of the Vagabonds game is is aiding and getting points for that. And starting with that extra card draw will be very helpful. Uh, in terms of aiding, you won't you won't have to worry about that early quest or something to get extra cards in your hand in order to aid. Does the potential for it to be really good depend on if the role of the combat is good? Essentially, like if you get three and three, you're like yes, <laughs> like that is when it is really good. Or is it more situational than that? Than beyond just the dice? I think you know you. I think it's like the the forces have to both be in the same clearing, and then you have to be in that clearing. Yeah. And yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I, it, it requires an alignment of the stars a little bit. Yeah, I get yeah. it. Okay. I don't know. I think it could potentially, you, there's a situation where you could use the torch ability to soften up a target. You know, if there's a bunch of meeples standing and guarding some cardboard, you can use somebody else's forces to kind of like wear that down and then uh, go at it with your swords. I would say the big drawback to starting as the vagrant is you obviously don't start with a sword. So you're just undefended for a while. And even though you got nice card draw, like you better hope that you're exploring for a sword pretty quick because, you know, you're you're kind of locked out of getting any combat ability until that happens. So, uh, right. yeah, I think the Vagrant is one of the lower tier Vagabonds. Yeah, we're going to say bottom tier. I'm going to yeah. say straight up tied for bottom tier. Uh, Kyle, like you said, what three items are we looking for? Swords, tea, hammer. This Vagabond has none of those things and starts with less items than most Vagabonds (laughs) and their ability situational. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Speaking of, let's, let's, let's move on to the scoundrel, the, the black cat with a pumpkin for its face. Um, (laughs) Four starting items here, two boots, a torch and a crossbow. Um, Their ability is so fun. Uh, You, uh, you don't exhaust the torch. You, Place this torch in your clearing. Remove all enemy pieces there. Pieces can no longer be placed in or moved into this clearing. So when we place our torch in there, basically we remove all enemy pieces and then nothing can ever go into that clearing again. Yeah, pieces can leave that clearing. Uh, There's one very famous example like edge case in this, you know, in this uh, faction that is just all edge cases where if you are allied with some or in a coalition with a faction and you scorched earth, you're technically, they're not your enemy anymore. So they're not enemy pieces. They don't get removed. They can't move into that clearing anymore, but they can leave it if they want to. A good example being like the malls for, for instance. Mm -hmm. Right. Wait, you're telling me if you're allied or, 
or have a, a coalition with someone, they're not removed from this ability? Yeah, I think it's just if you're in a coalition. A you're coalition, no, yeah. You're no longer enemies. That is crazy. Yeah. There's wow. eventually going to be an overhaul to the phrase enemy pieces. And yeah. yeah, I'm throwing this football into the future. There's going to be some clarification around that eventually. But yeah, as of right now, that's like a weird edge case that is possible. The scoundrel, right. why, why does the scoundrel need two boots? <laughs> yeah, well, we don't start with a sword, a T, or a hammer. So already we're ranking this low, but it does start with two boots, which is something. I guess there's just more hit points at the very least because we're undefended at the beginning. Um, and its torch ability is so sweet. It is so cool, but it is not very practical because you can only do it once in the whole game. So I don't know. Jake, Jake what do you, what you, do you ever, think? This, yeah. this is this a fun one? <laughs> I mean, it seems like it should be, but like it's so, again... You're, you're dropping a item, which doesn't seem like a great thing. And he does have, like, a bomb, it sounds like, right? It's just like, yeah, I'm going to set fire to this clearing, and no one will want to come here again. What's the point of this? I where, what's the, Where's the tactical use of this? Like, they don't really gain much from shutting one down except for blowing up the tokens and getting points for that, right? Or actually, do they even get it? Cause, yeah, it's removed, so they do get yeah. it for this. But like, Yeah, they would get points the point? for that, for sure. I would say that it's in the... In this case, like in many others in Root, the threat is stronger than the execution. If you have a scoundrel with a torch moving around, you got to think like, okay, if I piss the scoundrel off, he's coming over and he's going to just blow up this clearing with all my stuff in it. He's holding his jacket open the whole time, showing everybody the bomb (laughs) and just looking them in the eye. That's the strategy. Yeah, the crazy eyesist of the vagabonds. Yeah, that's why Um, they got to cover it with that pumpkin face. I still feel like your opponents know the issue with it, though, which is you only got one, and it is your torch still, right? Yeah, the longer you hang on to it, the more potential value it has, though. You know, if um, right. cats get, you know, locked into a clearing and they start generating wood out of a sawmill, they can't leave. Like, it's got to be a juicy target for sure. Yeah. The other thing call. to keep in mind, though, is that players can't move pieces into a clearing that's been torched, which opens up some interesting options on maps that have a lot of choke points. You can essentially turn you know a loop into a a crescent Mm -hmm. a croissant if you will (laughs) on the lake map for example if you blow up one of those choke point clearings it can it can mean that suddenly a faction is extremely far away from another faction right Uh, which can have really weird strategic implications and it can create a board state that is like absolutely wild and uh i think that's the scoundrel's main point is just as like a generator of maximum chaos yeah yeah that's a good point are there any mechanics in the game that would circumvent this because move and place are the ways to get in there right those are the only two ways to put tokens or pieces into a clearing right there's no other exceptions a snare would prevent it because you can't place the torch in the clearing also the keep would prevent that because you can't place the torch in that clearing but nothing would get around the torch being there afterwards, really, no. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. No. Cool, cool. Seems one bananas. fun side note is that in uh, in Tabletop Simulator, uh, one thing I, I notice is that whenever the scoundrel activates their ability, um, people take the, the torch item and they make it really big so that it covers up the whole clearing. And so <laughs> it's very, visually very clear, like, which, yeah. <laughs> which clearing this has been This place is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about one of the stronger Vagabonds going back to the top of the list. Not very top. Is the Arbiter. 
All right, the Arbiter starts, uh, it's a badger, the first badger en route. Thank you, uh, Keepers and Iron. The starting items are a boot, a torch, and two swords. All right, the ability does not uh, require a torch to be exhausted or a torch at all. It says, before rolling in battle, the defender may enlist the Arbiter if he is in the battle's clearing. The Arbiter scores one point and adds undamaged swords to the defender's maximum rolled hits. Whoa. What? Adds undamaged swords. So if they have two undamaged swords, the they add two hits? Two maximum rolled hits. So it can still only go up to three. But let's say you, were, you had one warrior in that clearing and the Arbiter's there and you get attacked by three birds... You can enlist the Arbiter's help to add the swords to the roll, essentially. So if it rolled 3-3, three, three, you would do three hits in defense. Yes, I understand now. The other thing is, is like this isn't in control of the Arbiter. The no. defender chooses when to use this ability, right? Yeah. That's crazy. And in my experience, they won't. They will forget about it. It's very situational. I don't remember the last time I've seen someone... Enlist the Arbiter. <laughs> Kyle? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those faction abilities that is like, you know, t- there's a lot of text, it's very airtight, and it's just not activated very frequently. I, yeah, I do think it's extremely situational. The main headline about the Arbiter is two swords. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> two swords. So, Sam, do a little math with me. What's the maximum number of swords that the Arbiter can carry? Five. <laughs> Oh my because god. Because they could get the two ones that are able to be crafted, and obviously there's one in the ruins as well. So the Oof. Arbiter could have five swords, meaning that they could do five battles each with three hits maximum, assuming they don't have any crafted cards that are adding. I mean, that's a hell of a snowball, you know? Like, yeah. Oh, yikes. I mean, they, they get sword number three from exploring. Mm-hmm. That's already crazy. Yeah. The, the one drawback that I can see about the Arbiter is that they are bag-starved mm-hmm. from the get-go. But they start with a boot, so, you know, like, the, no they can deal. they can make it back if they have to chuck a boot. Like, there's another one in the ruins. They won't be totally, like, limping along for very long. Yeah. I think what keeps Arbiter from being absolutely, like, top threshold, and by top threshold, I mean, like, kind of broken is that the Arbiter does have a mobility issue. Like you said, Kyle, the bag can be a problem early on, and if you have to chuck that boot, then basically all your movement's going to come down to is slipping because most of our points as the Arbiter are going to be coming from battling people, and as soon as you go hostile, then it's going to be more costly for you to move. So the Arbiter kind of has that thing. Now, I'm not saying the Arbiter is not kind of broken because we've all been in the game where the Arbiter really makes you pay and and with like four swords or something it's insane but there is like kind of a push and pull and you can make the arbiter's day bad uh by limiting their mobility but that said they start with two swords of attacking the arbiter like they've got a lot of teeth they (laughs) you know it's very costly to go after the arbiter even on turn one it's potentially very costly and yeah this is one of those Vagabond characters that when it's when it shows up is on the table to just attack. I was just thinking about this enlist ability, the protector ability here. 
it would be fun is like the Woodland Alliance, right? You could make your sympathy tokens kind of punch back. I'm just realizing like undefended stuff could be kind of fun. And taking the higher role, like the Woodland Alliance does that with right. their tokens too, with Guerrilla <laughs> War. So that's actually a pretty cool little bit of, um, you know, uh, synchronicity there. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Uh, we have the Harrier. The Harrier is one of the more broken ones. Let's talk about it. They start with a coin, a torch, a crossbow, and a sword. Wait a minute, Kyle. There's no boots here. How do the, how on earth do they move? Well, luckily the Vagabond has this ability called Slip, which is so good. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what they used to get around for the beginning of the game. But their faction ability, Glide, is probably tied for best in uh, in among the Vagabond characters. Yeah, Glide is you exhaust a torch and you move into any clearing, even hostile on the map without exhausting a boot. This squirrel can teleport. Well, it's a flying squirrel, so it can glide. Mm. I like that it's not called fly, it's called glide. Glide, yeah. You know, very specifically. You think, think the squirrel would be showing off those armpits a little more, but he, they got sleeves on. Yeah. Also, this character is so cute and so harmless looking. But it is the most aggressive vagabond. Because of the 100%. movement? 100%. The, because... Like we were talking about with the Arbiter, the Arbiter is one of the more aggro ones, right? It starts with two swords. Harrier starts with a, a crossbow and a sword, but the Arbiter was limited by their mobility, right? If if they have to chuck a boot or if they have to slip everywhere, they're not going to get to the juiciest clearings. But Harrier, every turn they want to be Murder MacGyver, can teleport to the juiciest clearing with the most cardboard and the least warriors. Every turn. And they just have that crossbow to make things a little bit easier. Yep. Force your opponents to stock up on warriors a little bit more and make everybody that much more afraid because if they move out on the map, there's like no stopping the movement. It's literally, it's just the ranger without any mobility issues. Plus you start with a coin for no reason. Yeah. So you can't even get bag locked on exploring. Like it's so good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the Space Cats Peace Turtles Patreon tournament, my first game, uh, I played against Billy, and Billy was actively trying to break the Vagabond or break the Harrier in in the tournament. He turn one like did like a really hostile move, and was just kind of proving like there is no consequence for me going hostile this early, and didn't pull it out because. I did, but um, <laughs> but no, uh, but it was a good game, and it showed how close it was to just, if you just glide and kill, glide and kill, it's too effective of a strategy for how simple it is. So was yeah. there a consequence? No. Oh, yeah. Billy got 29 points. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, Billy probably could have won. You know, at some yeah. point in there. I mean, we all have those games. So I, many other I mean, factors. I'm Mr. Right. 29. I, we all have those games where we're like, oh, there could have been some point along somewhere. We could have been more efficient. But um, but I don't think that that's any any failure of Billy's Harrier strategy. It seems yeah. to work just fine. Yeah. I think it is worth spending a little time just like talking about the Harrier because the the Harrier is most vulnerable early in the game without boots. Right? right, because whatever clearing they slip into, they just have the adjacent clearings to like move around and explore in. Right. So almost more than the other vagabonds, they are kind of locked into that early explore kind of roller coaster track. Mm-hmm. But that being said, 
they don't need boots. So if the if the explore RNG is good, uh, they can spend the rest of the game just flying around, and you know they don't even need to spend that torch exploring. So for the end game, what this means is uh, that the Harrier just flies into a sensitive clearing, attacks for maximum points, and then just says, see you next turn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Harrier is one of the ones where I feel like they don't need to explore every ruins if they get lucky, right? Most Vagabonds, it's like, it's a point, it's an extra action in every future turn, and it's an extra hit point, so you might as well get all of them. Harrier's the only one where I'm like, you can actually do better than that <laughs> if you <laughs> if if you see the right opportunity. And just psychologically, it's very um, taxing to play against the Harrier because you constantly have to calculate what if the Harrier flies into this clearing that I'm leaving <laughs> and just wrecks my stuff. Like, yeah. I feel like as the cats playing against the Harrier is, it just makes me want to cry because like, yeah. you know, they can break that the chain of wood super easily they could just take out your sawmills like very very easily it's it's super hard to defend against and uh, i think that's what makes it one of the top tier vagabonds yeah all right let's talk about adventurer this is one of my favorite vagabonds starts with three (laughs) items a boot a torch and a hammer this uh, beautiful barn owl has an ability called Improvise. Doesn't require a torch here. It says once per turn, you may damage any unexhausted item to treat it as any other item in order to complete a quest. Wow. So, this is the one they, they they threw us a bone. They knew questing wasn't uh, the main source of points for the Vagabond, let's say. And the adventurer uh, is our questing Vagabond. Uh, Kyle, have you played uh, many games as Adventurer? I've played a couple as the Adventurer. And I think that the Adventurer is basically the same thing as the Tinker, because you start with a hammer. Yeah. Um, but with a, a, you know, a little better PR. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's got a friendlier looking face. And players, you know, playing against the Adventurer, you would think, you're like, oh, it's like a friendlier Tinker. It's a Tinker that won't just like instantly end the game all the time. <laughs> he does improv. He's harmless. <laughs> yeah, he's really Can nice. I get a suggestion of a friend? <laughs> Me. <laughs> you're fired from this comedy club. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the Adventurer, I think, appears on the surface to be like a more pacifist Tinker. But then... The power of starting with a hammer is just kind of too good. And even though they start undefended, they can craft a sword pretty early in the game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of downhill from there. I think improvise <laughs> is an ability that doesn't get used too, too often. But towards the end of the game, it can be used for a mega turn to close it out without having to roll any dice. And I think that's one of the things that makes Adventure so strong is that early in the game... You have that hammer. You can craft a tea for yourself. Complete like a couple of quests. You know, you're incentivized to do just that. And, you know, by the time you're completing your third quest in a suit, you're getting three points for it. And that can help your, uh, you know, six to nine point end game swing quite a bit. So I would say Adventure is actually one of the upper tier Vagabonds, even though on the surface it appears to be, um, you know, a little soft, a little lame. Yeah, I'd say medium-high for Adventurer. Obviously, it doesn't start with a bag like Tinker, and Tinker's ability is the maybe the best one. Um, Adventurer uh, has that questing flavor, which I think you're right, Kyle. I think like one of the big advantages to the Adventurer is its PR. 
Like, I like Adventurer. I think Adventurer is swell to have at the table. I hope you have success in your questing strategy, you know? <laughs> That's how I feel when Adventurer is at the table. Um, but, but I think one of the most powerful things a Vagabond can do is craft their own items or just have the ability to craft. And Adventurer starts with that hammer, and they're going to have two hammers very soon. And what does questing do? It can allow you to draw extra cards. So you can you you can make your own luck of drawing more cards that you could then craft for more items and points, which are actions and victory points. Well, we had, we talked about all this. <laughs> it's but, kind of the engine that like the vagabond was meant to to use, right? You know, like questing yeah. to draw cards in order to craft items in order to get more actions, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. It, the adventure is just like a little more efficient at getting that engine going than most of the other character cards, and. Uh, can do it usually because the table will see it as not as threatening as like the Harrier or uh, as the Tinker. All right, let's finish it up. Last and least, it is Ronin. Uh, Ronin starts with two boots, a torch, and a sword, similar to Scoundrel, except for a sword instead of a crossbow. And they have ability Swift Strike. Again, no torch on this one. And this says, after rolling in battle, may exhaust a sword to deal an extra hit. And this ability is very situational. <laughs> yeah. So situational. I, I feel like it's almost better to just leave the sword unexhausted in order to go for more points. Yeah, just battle again. Yeah, because right? you have such a higher... You have a better chance at rolling at least a one or a higher number, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a 15 out of 16 chance to not roll double zero. Right, right, which would be right. the only situation where you would deal less hits than one. Right. To me, it's it's just the icing on the cake kind of thing. It's like when you take out all the warriors, but the building is still there. Yeah. That's when you would exhaust the the sword. But even then, it's like if it's the, your last, like, action. I just, I'm trying to, I'm struggling to think of a. I think I think that's it, Kyle. Because if I have to go into another battle, that's another timing window where I could be ambushed. Yeah, I, I guess, guess so. Would be the logic there. Honestly, maybe it's even just to take out the last warrior. You know, if they have three warriors guarding it and you roll a two, I mean, you have to have three swords to yeah. take out the rest of the buildings. But like, yeah, which again, it's fine either way. It's just one of those things where like exhausting a sword to battle is usually more profitable points wise. Yeah, but it could be one of those things too, where if you do roll that zero zero, and you really just need the one extra hit to like make magic happen. Uh, this is the way to do it. I think Ronin gets a bad rap and deserves it, but I think there are situations when it might actually be good to choose Ronin. And that's in situations where there are two Vagabonds. Oh, what? Talk to me. (laughs) In a game where you have more than one Vagabond, there's like a whole special set of considerations that are like not what you would think about ordinarily with a Vagabond. And one of those considerations is you want to be the Vagabond at the table who is less appealing to attack. Mm. And in that kind of a situation, starting with a sword is more important than being defenseless. So in that kind of a situation, sometimes being a Ronin can uh, can help to make you the less appealing target and help to get you a little bit further in a two Vagabond situation. Yeah. So in a two Vagabond situation, assuming your only sword Vagabond option is Ronin, that's when you're saying go Ronin. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Again, very situational. <laughs> yeah, super situational. All right, so 
Uh, let's kind of talk. We've talked about all the character cards, okay? That's Those are all the abilities. This is all the things the Vagabond has, okay? So let's talk about, I think, th they kind of have four ways of scoring points, the Vagabond, okay? They have crafting items, infamy, you know, battling things to get points, aiding, and questing, I guess, right? <laughs> Um, so these are the three and a half pillars of the Vagabond's game. And I did a lot of, of in-depth stuff on questing, and I want to I get into it in a second. But I just kind of want to talk about uh, which Vagabonds kind of fit into what category a little bit. So for aiding, I think the best three Vagabonds for aiding are the Thief, uh, because you have all those refreshed items, so you can aid without fear there. Um, also, if you can use their ability to steal a card from an opponent and maybe it's, you, it matches the clearing and you can aid it to them right back and get a point. Um, so I think Thief is probably the best. I said an early Harrier because we start with a coin so that the extra cards uh, could be uh, easily done there. Mm -hmm. um, and then Ronin has kind of like the extra items in order to do it. Um, however, Ronin can become bag limited. Uh, so that could, that could be a problem. You don't want to, you know, aid and get extra items to the point where then you're going to have to throw them away. Right. 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 And in that, uh, in that same sense, like scoundrel as well, you know, you start with that second boot, like you can yeah. easily just use that to aid players. Um, yeah, I, this is a really cool way to break it down, Sam. Yeah. Um, and then hostility, uh, the best murder MacGyvers we've got here are Harrier Number one, for all the reasons we listed, the teleport and kill is is really brutal. Arbiter, we're starting with two swords, very aggro. And then Ranger. Ranger, I think, just is a little bit more durable with their hideout ability to, to repair their items. They only start with one sword. Uh, they don't have an inherent um, solution to the movement thing, but they are very durable and, and can definitely pull out the win. Therefore, should take hostile actions right because they don't they don't have anything that's particularly good for hostility but they have things that supplement that well right is that what you're saying no, i mean they have they have a good toolkit for hostility we're starting with a crossbow and a sword but they yeah i think that you just i think you have to be a little bit more reserved with ranger than you do harrier right. and arbiter you kind of just let fly and see if the game can keep up with your pace almost Okay. But like the durability that you mentioned with the ranger, it's like you can just attack, and if you get hurt a lot and damage some items, like you can use hideout to kind of, you know, refresh everything at the end or like repair everything. So you're just ready to go again next turn. Mm -hmm. um, it is nice to be able to kind of like reset that way. Um, for crafting, uh, this is obviously tinker and adventurer. Uh, tinker above adventurer, I'd say. Tinker is number one just because we can fish the items back out of the discard pile. So, I mean, they're in their own tier for crafting. <laughs> then adventurer, and then basically everyone else because everybody else has the same shot at getting... Uh, we're going to get one hammer from the ruins, and there's one hammer card in the deck. Good luck finding it. And hopefully <laughs> someone crafts it for you, but if they're smart, they won't. Which brings us... <laughs> To the half pillar of Vagabond scoring, which is questing. And I've, I, I kind of want to go into questing and kind of explore 
because uh, I, I want it to be more viable. So I, I, I tried to do some research here to, to help us with our vagabond questing in the future. Okay. This is the RPG element that I feel like gives the character some of the most flavor yes. as a faction. Yes. So, so let's, and, and there's so many like, you know, individually illustrated cards and there's like all these clever combinations of things. So the quests have been very well thought out, but they, I feel like they're a bit neglected during most games. Yeah. So Sam, why? I'm curious as well. Like what's going on? I think it's the fact that you have to exhaust two of your items to either get one point or two cards. And those, you also have to be in a particular clearing and, the the how quests work there's always three available to you and if it's like something like where it's exhausting both swords or exhausting a t it's like no i'm not gonna do that that's a waste of opportunity cost for me i can get so many more points out of the swords or i'm going to need that t next turn (laughs) i'm not going to just take a three action turn next turn right Mm. so i think that quests because you have to just spend two items to accomplish them depending on what those items are it can be really inefficient uh so let's talk about the the 15 quest cards okay there are nine different quests okay because there are some repeats in different suits six of which uh uh have two copies of different suits like i said and three unique quests there are three quests that don't double up at all okay Three of the quests have items that correspond to the items required for that quest. So essentially, there are some quests that just have an inherent advantage. Uh, Yeah, symmetry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's just like something about these quests that make them easier to accomplish because you already have had to have been to that clearing, most likely, either to aid for that item. There's a synergy in the fact that you probably had to... You were in there to create it, therefore you could be in there to complete the quest, right? Yes, and I mean, there's lots of ways to get items. That won't always necessarily sure. be the case. You could explore a ruin for a boot, and that ruin could be in a fox clearing. But this opens that door, potentially. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. There are other two quests that function like this are Repair a Shed. It's a fox quest, which requires the torch and the hammer. Torch is just your torch, but a hammer is a fox crafter. And the mouse copy of Logistics Help is a boot in a bag. So I did some research on the kind of like suits, uh, because there's uh, three of each suit, or five of each suit. Um, And not all quests are created equal, it turns out, you guys. Fox quests are particularly bad. Uh, (laughs) Three out of the five Fox quests require you to use a T. Okay? So that's kind of a no-go in my book. Uh, you it's can't really, really do hard. anything about the RNG of the quest. <laughs> um, the only way to get rid of that quest in your selection is to complete it. So you can get in trouble here with questing, but I would just say if you can avoid it, Fox quests are not the one to start off with. As a quick aside, though, isn't this the perfect suit to use the adventurer's ability improvise, though? Like, improvising a T yes. is like probably one of the best ones. A T oh, or that- a hammer, right? That's a great call, Kyle. Yeah, that would be a good use of improvise, for sure. Because then you have that hammer to just instantly repair it as well. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh, and on the flip side, mouse quests seem super doable. All right. In addition to having the two quests with the items that match the suit, um, all mouse quests can be done with items that won't eat into your action economy too bad. For instance, you only need... Uh, to complete all the mouse quests, you'd need three boots... 
a bag, a crossbow, and two swords. Uh, one of the quests requires one sword, and one of them requires two swords. So if you want to do them in the same turn, you'd have to have three, but you could do them over multiple turns, right? Yeah, boot, bag, crossbow, and swords is very accessible. Yeah. Like, of those, the crossbow is the hardest one to come across, and even that is, like, there's multiple copies in the deck, so, like, your chances of stumbling across a crossbow are pretty good. Yeah. And then uh, Rabbit's kind of in the middle, where uh, it's two of the quests require T's, um, and then you got crossbow and swords and a boot, and then Fox requires, like I said, three of the quests require T's, uh, coins and hammer can be annoying to have to use during a quest especially hammer who wants to use a hammer for a quest you know when you can use it to craft an item or repair an item so with all of this being said here is my quest tier list all right obviously adventure is number one just because it's the only one with an inherent advantage to questing and then i have tinker and thief after that and that is Honestly, because of the action economy and the fact that Tinker's probably going to have the items in order to complete these things. Yeah, being in control of your own destiny in terms of crafting, turns out it goes a long way towards questing. Yeah. Uh, and the Thief, because you start with a T, just means you can quest from the very, very beginning of the game with no like issue about your action, spending your action economy doing that rather than something else. In my mid-tier here, I got Ranger, Ronin, and Arbiter. I think it's just because they start with more items. Um, and then Vagrant, Harrier, and Scoundrel are just probably not that interested in questing given their limited action economy. Harrier doesn't start with boots, so a lot of the quests require boots or multiple boots. Or getting to the place you need to be, right? Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're spending the Harrier's torch on Glide. Pretty much all the time, and yeah. not worrying about questing. Scoundrel, I could, I can see a world where, because Scoundrel, you start with a crossbow, so like, you know, there's a world where you're spending a torch and a crossbow for a quest every now and then. Should we be asking ourselves less about like when to do quests so much as if we are blank vagabond, should we be bothering with quests? Like, what's the priority of this question, I suppose? Or is it even, like, what are the quests that are available to me versus where I'm at? Yeah, I think I would probably advise everyone complete one quest in their Vagabond game, probably mm -hmm. just for the early card draw. Yeah. Uh, apart from that, it's going to be very dependent on what quests come out. Okay. And if it's just easy for you to do. Yeah. You know, kind of like cat crafting. We're just hoping it lines up. And then, <laughs> oh, great, I do have those items. And I'm in that clearing. Fantastic. Yeah. Right? Um, and so theme-wise, I was looking at all the names of the quests and stuff. And so I, I thought this kind of told us a little bit more about the woodland. I, I found out through the Vagabond quest that mice don't need help with errands but are not a fan of speeches because the give a speech quest is in rabbit and fox. So the mice, so they're, they don't, they're a bit shy. Yeah. They don't need it. Uh, rabbits don't need help with logistics. They got that. Um, but they're most likely to require the use of your torch. So mm -hmm. um, especially if we're talking about Harrier definitely doesn't like those rabbit quests and Fox don't need help fending off bears or expelling <laughs> bandits. Right. We talked about their, how they're the muscle of the forest. But they're the only woodland denizens willing to help you repair a shed. <laughs> because everybody else seems to need your help, I guess, you know? So foxes haven't figured out. <laughs> or wait, no, I think, no, hold on. Uh, the foxes are the only ones who need your help? 
repairing a shed. They're only the ones with a shed. Yeah, the foxes are the only ones with sheds. All right. Yeah, everybody else just has either that or the, the shittiest builders of sheds and need the most repair. That I can't. I can't speak. They just have no engineers in their heads. <laughs> all right. So we've kind of got our uh, our situation. We know like the different ways we score. And I couldn't really come up with a good scoring method for the Vagabond, whether they were burst or exponential. I said they're mostly exponential because they just keep getting items and items get them more points in one of those three and a half ways. Um, And then I just said, who are we kidding? Everything is possible. Everything (laughs) is possible. Yeah, they snowball. So it's a little bit exponential. They tend to snowball. Um, Scoring method, I, I think the best description that I've come up with for it is point salad. Yeah, you're just, it really is. All of those scoring methods, you know, you're just going to take a little bit of this. You're going to take a little bit of that. You know, get one point here, one point there. And then by the end of the game, you, you just have so many options to score a bunch of points that there's literally no way to stop you. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things we didn't really talk about is Vagabond is one of the freest factions to do their actions in any order possible. Like, they can craft at any point that is most advantageous for them in their daylight, right? They can craft a card and then have that card come into play on a future battle or or whatever it is. They can move and then battle. They can battle and then move. It doesn't matter. They're not locked into any timing. And as as a result, that point salad, you can really get very efficient with, with your point scoring. So a lot of their points are going to be coming from crafting, uh, and we kind of talked about which Vagabonds are the best for crafting, but we didn't really talk about what cards in the deck we're looking to craft. And my biggest advice is that we are prioritizing items over everything else. Especially those single crafting cost items, yeah. uh, such as tea, boots, and bags, and crossbows, and hammers. Yeah. Because they're yeah. worth less, which would be... Uh, unappealing generally but they cost less to make and they're items for us and items are not always equal but they're items right yeah an item is always worth more than its point value to the vagabond um and the items that are worth more than one point are worth even more (laughs) to the vagabond so like (laughs) crafting a sword you get two points for crafting it and then it's just giving you a billion points after that anyway yeah, the so the potential like, of eight more points probably with one yeah sword. it's yeah. crazy it's cra- that's why whenever a tinker crafts a sword i'm like run for the hills like <laughs> but there are a couple cards in the deck some some persistent effects some crafted improvements that i think that can severely benefit a vagabond game in the base deck i think the number one is armorers the ability to discard a card so that you ignore all rolled hits taken can just save ya bacon as the Vagabond. People are going to come. They're going to target you. And this is going to be the time they're going to send you to your to the forest. But if you have this armorers there, that is just something they have to do twice, essentially. Yep, definitely. I think uh, so. I see that there's cobbler on this list as well. Yeah. And I want to push back a little bit and say I think one of the other double rabbit crafted improvements is slightly better than cobbler. And I think that's better burrow bank. Um, Yeah. If the vagabond can get good card advantage going, um, whether that's through coins or through a crafted improvement, I just think that improves their ability to like have some staying power and like diversify their item set early. Um, 
you know, because drawing into a hammer early in the game because you're, you know, getting extra card draw, that's just going to help you. Uh, yeah. Also, because of uh, aiding, having more cards available is going to be helpful. Getting those ambushes ready to go. I love Better Burrow Bank as the Vagabond. I think it's very good. Also, you can kind of use that to your diplomatic advantage to kind of persuade somebody to not attack you and say like, hey, I'll give you an extra card during my bird song if you leave me alone this turn. Cats. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that 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 could that could be my thought with Cobbler is that this between this and slip, we don't even need boots. Right. Like you can go full hostile and you don't even have to worry about uh, any movement going on forward because you're going to at the end of your evening, you're going to go somewhere and then the next time you're going to slip somewhere else. So um, that was my thinking with Cobbler. But I could see an argument, too, especially if it's early on, you might get more mileage out of Better Burrow Bank. And then I said, maybe Sappers, just another thing to try to disincentivize people attacking you. This is great, especially as one of the factions with a hammer but no sword early in the game. Mm-hmm. Crafting armorers and sappers is an awesome turn one for the tinker. Yeah. Because uh, you're just saying to the table, hey, like, you don't want to come after me. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a waste of your time, and you're going to lose a warrior for your trouble. Yeah. Uh, E&P deck, though, I think there's a lot of good cards, a lot of persistent effects that the Vagabond can take advantage of. False orders is insane. The ability to move everybody's chunky warriors out of the clearing with their cardboard and then come in and slice and dice it up for double points, it's like, it hurts thinking about how good False Orders is for the Vagabond. It's good for everybody, but the Vagabond can make double points advantage out of it. And the fact that it only requires one hammer to craft False Orders means that it's accessible to every vagabond class mm-hmm. which makes it a little extra scary in my opinion yeah i think false orders is the uh is the thing to look at in the mp deck maybe uh master engravers yeah I, w- I i i was wondering if i should put master engravers it's just that it's two hammers yeah so i'm like by the time you get it if you get it early i mean all these things are there's a situation where master engravers is going to be broken and it's going to win you the game but I just felt like that situation isn't going to come up as often. You're right. You're right. It's maybe a little slow. It's kind of crazy. Um, False um, orders is only one fox clearing. I yeah. know. Yeah. It's yeah. secretly so such a good card. Um, yeah. That also could combo up with you know instigate or um, I've got dynamite mm-hmm. under my jacket. Right? What's that right. ability? <laughs> the scoundrel. Scoundrel. Oh, yeah. So like yeah, I feel like these are real combo potentials because you could bring a whole big old force in there and then blow it up. I didn't even think about aggressively moving mm-hmm. uh, false ordering that's, warriors right. into the clearing you're about to scorch. That's amazing. Wow, because yeah. we always <laughs> think of false orders as like moving them from a clearing, which is true, but they have to go somewhere, right? So if that's yeah. really your objective, that could be a fun oh, Jake, you have to play. The <laughs> yeah, that's so fun. Uh, and soon on digital, we will be able to because the new Vagabond classes uh, from the Riverfolk expansion will be on there. But the EMP deck still isn't on there, right? Right, right, right. Soon. right, right. Not yet, not yet. No, that's oh, good One point. day. Uh, another right. great set of cards from the EMP deck that is uh, should be high on your list as the Vagabond to craft is Partisans. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, because it, the battle action for the Vagabond, uh, when you have Infamy involved, is going to score you points for every hit you deal in battle. Uh, Partisans just adds more fuel to that fire. It's literally a point every time you activate it as the Vagabond. 
uh, on when you're attacking. You can obviously activate it in defense as well, not for points, but just <laughs> to further disincentivize people to attack you. <laughs> um, partisans, it, I mean, it just generates you points as the vagabond. It's such a good craft for one crafting pa- one crafting piece. Yeah, you get a lot of value out of it. Um, another one cost one is swap meat. Uh, very good. We're trading cards. Uh, you know, we get to take a random card from a player, and then we get to give them a card of our choosing. Um, it can be very good for cycling items out of people's hands, or even like you can aid someone, and then the next turn take that card back. Ran- it'd be random. You wouldn't know if you'd get it back or not. But uh, some fun shenanigans can be had there, or with the thief's ability to steal a card. I, I can imagine a scenario where somebody's like, oh man, if they craft coins, the game is over. And then you have multiple ways to try to get coins out mm-hmm, of their hands mm-hmm. or something. Well, and one of the ways to play against uh, one of the crafty vagabonds, like um, mm-hmm. the tinker or the adventurer is to sort of keep certain cards like the, the hammer in hand jail yeah. and uh, <laughs> never let them hit the discard pile. Never let them kind of cycle through the deck. Right. Uh, I've never heard the concept hand hand. jail. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This is something that this is one way to play against the vagabond is to hand jail certain items. Yeah. Uh, Teas and hammers most uh, often, but also swords can be in that mix too. Uh, And swap meat is a great way to free those (laughs) those hammers and teas and let them see the light of day. (laughs) That's your pardon uh, from the governor from hand jail. Uh, The (laughs) other card I want to highlight here is Coffin Makers. It does cost two rabbit uh, crafters, so getting two hammers is tricky, but if you craft Coffin Makers, the game is over. Because you're not (laughs) only getting... You're getting double points for everything you're killing, and then you get points at the beginning of your turn for all the stuff you had killed. And that's another one that makes Instigate suddenly a lot better, doesn't it? Ooh, definitely instigate yeah. and coffin makers. That is fun. Yeah. God, Jake, you've come up with the best evil strategies for these. Like, I'm just trying to make that like... crazy psychopath of a character class worth it. Like, look at his poor face. He doesn't know what's going on. He's just starting fights constantly. We got to give him a reason to. <laughs> he called you a jerk. <laughs> All right, let's talk about actually how to play right (laughs) set up early game mid game late game kind of scenario okay so when we are looking uh to set up we are choosing a forest and with that choice of forest i think you should already have in your head what path you are taking through the clearings with the ruins in order to get those first four items okay how do you work out what that path is yeah so in some maps it's pretty obvious I guess it's not obvious which way you should go. I, In terms of what factions are already populating the map, I would be thinking which faction would be most beneficial for me to go hostile towards, right? Which faction is going to have a bunch of cardboard? Maybe the cats, for example. And I want to end my little loop near that faction. Right. Okay. Got it. So, you, yeah, you, you start with the clearing that has some cat presence, for example, and then just work backwards four clearings or four ruins. Right. And uh, and start there. I think that makes a ton of sense. On most maps, you're going to have access to a forest that is connected to a lot of those ruins, a sort of central forest. And one thing that I'd say is like always start in a forest that gives you the most options. 
because if you, I, I see sometimes players will start in forests that are like only connected to one ruin and I'm like, okay, well, great. Well, we all know you're going to go there now. So it's now possible to form a plan to like stock that clearing with warriors so I can attack you. Um, you know, it, it's, it becomes possible to concretely play against the Vagabond strategy if you start in like a cute forest. <laughs> so like start in the center, be vague and force your opponents to play flexibly and conservatively so that they can't just like hard counter your, your start. That's my advice for starting forest. <laughs> it's just like, I see it sometimes and I think players get a little bored starting in the same forest all the time, but there's a really good like theory reason behind that. And breaking it uh, comes with consequences occasionally. Like what can you do on turn one? Okay. Maybe not too much, but it, you know, in certain situations, especially if you're an undefended vagabond, like it can be possible for the person ahead of you in turn order to like put a couple more warriors in that clearing. And then all of a sudden you're in real trouble. Right. If the birds know you're going to be in that clearing, then they might be able to throw a card into battle and not feel too worried about it. Right. The wood, uh, you know, the corvids might put a bomb there, knowing they can get you next turn. You know, something right. like that. You just don't want to give your opponents the ability to make your life hard on turn one. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of that, like during setup, also, who's like glaring at you across the table for choosing vagabond, and who's watching real carefully as you choose your class, and and muttering under their breath about your selection. Stay away from them. Choose a forest. Every, um, everyone's thinking that, right? Probably everyone. But in, in particular, in terms of matchups, I would say any Vagabond that starts with a crossbow is going to be an insta enemy to the Woodland Alliance. Mm-hmm. Or really any faction that has, that's like an insurgent faction. Um, even like the Corvids would hate a Vagabond with a crossbow. Because oftentimes those unflipped plots are guarded by just one Corvid warrior. And you can't flip those plots unless they have an attendant warrior. So, like, a Vagabond of the Crossbow can deal serious damage to to the Corvid's strategy as well. So, like, that's, in particular, that's, like, one matchup to watch out for. If the Arbiter starts out, like, you know, factions are going to be trying to, like, avoid that Vagabond for a while, I think. Rather than trying to attack it head-on early in the game. Although I will say... If you're cats or something, I think there's uh, this is kind of playing against the vagabond. I knew we'd do this in the guide where we talk about during the guide how to defeat the vagabond. Um, <laughs> but but as cats, it can be worth it sometimes to like throw one warrior against the vagabond early, have them kill it in defense, and then they're hostile with you and you're all over the board. So you've limited their movement from turn one. Um, so that's that can be kind of fun to do. So, um, in terms of starting the game, I think that most of our first turns are exploring the ruins, right? We're slipping to a place. We don't need to exhaust these boots, people, in the first turns. We don't need to move anywhere. Usually, you can just slip in a great little line. So, that means you can use that boot for aiding or questing. Exactly. Yeah. I I do want to quickly say one more thing about setup. Yeah, yeah, please. One little fussy thing about setup for the Vagabond is that the quests, the starting quests, get revealed after you've chosen your starting forest, which is another reason why you should pick the most central connected forest that you can. Because, yeah, uh, like you mentioned, Sam, the, the plan is generally to explore those ruins at the beginning of the game and then occasionally go for a quest or something. And, you know, once you figure out what those starting quests are... 
you know, if you're the tinker and you have a boot and a bag quest, like slip into that clearing first. Like, you know, who cares about the track that you want to go on? Like go there, get the card draw and then just figure it out from there. So like, I, I think there's a, there's a nice logic to setting a, up a, like a little track for yourself to end in like the nice clearing. But I also think that makes you a little predictable and that is the death of an early vagabond play. So to stay kind of flexible and surprising, maybe like go for that early, early quest and then uh, be a little bit chaotic from there. Keep your opponents on, on their toes. Dance the dance. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, obviously, we're going to be aiding factions if they have crafted any item. I would say that would take priority over questing. But if 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 not, then I would say drawing those two early cards is going to be great because they could be a crafted item or you could just use those cards for aiding in the future. Now, hopefully, we can make some kind of deal in the early going because this is this is our window of vulnerability is the first few turns here. So after we need to make an early deal and after that we don't really need to worry about any other players. So we we should set ourselves up to kind of win from ahead uh the best we can or uh, the way we win will also help check the people that we're going to come after us. And we'll get into that. Um so we're trying to set up an early deal uh and maybe we can aid players a card that they might need. You know, we're really trying to make a pretty sweetheart deal of, I will give you a bird card if you don't attack me, uh, is a classic think, deal the Vagabond yeah. makes with the cat. There's basically like two flavors of deal that I've seen for the Vagabond. Yeah. You're right. Deal one is like, don't attack me, I'll give you a card. Yeah. I'll pay you a card to leave me alone. Yeah. Deal number two, though, is more of a mercenary kind of thing, mm. which is like, I will go after this player or I will like attack this sympathy that's in a very sensitive clearing for you if you craft an item for me. Yeah. So I've seen that that's kind of deal happen as well. Um, and I think that actually can be kind of win-win for the factions involved in that kind of a deal. Um, and, you know, it's maybe understood that like you won't, attack me i guess on my turn if i'm helping you out i don't know maybe we have to make that clear because uh, you know as the vagabond like your your life is a bit fraught and everyone's got knives out for you yeah i feel like i don't want to devolve too much into the meta conversation because we're going to have that at a different time but like this is important to mention of like you need to be a friendly a friendly face in the top of the game otherwise you're pretty hosed, right? Like if they if they take aggressive action against you early, you're going to be hamstrung for the rest. The, of the window game. of vulnerability. You're mm-hmm. so right about uh, about that, Sam. Players can really take advantage of the fact that you have a limited action economy. If they send you to the forest on turn one or two, it's going to be very hard to like get your footing, and uh, you know the other players will be gaining strength while you're still floundering around looking for those basic items. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the situation, the type of spiral you don't want to find yourself in as the Vagabond. And making deals is a great way to help to kind of keep your opponents in check. Because making a deal with one faction is kind of like making a deal with three factions. Um, right. Because if you help one faction get ahead, then the other two are going to be forced to kind of counterbalance that. And in the process, sort of leave you a little bit alone or only attack you. But then that lets the one faction you helped get a little further ahead, um, potentially. Um, So early in the game, you want to dance the dance, try and make friends and make sure you end your turns in clearings where you won't get punched. (laughs) (laughs) 
this is really one of the the kind of like things you have to be a bit savvy about as a vagabond player is determining where is safe, where is right. safe to land. Make sure it's a clearing that's a little bit like, you know, lightly defended, but that that is not too sensitive. Because like if you end your first turn at the keep or something, like the cats are gonna obviously be a little uncomfortable with that. Yeah. And unless you've like already struck a deal with them and you're like, hey, I'm just visiting this because it's a mouse clearing or whatever, like they're going to attack you because you're in their territory. You're like on top of their stuff. Yeah. Uh, so be a bit judicious about where you land at the end of those first couple of turns. Um, be light. Be light on your feet. Be flexible. Don't end your turn in a sympathetic clearing when the Woodland Alliance is going to go next. Right. <laughs> We, that's the last thing we need is to get blown up and have to damage three items when we could have just booted out of that clearing. Oh, it's so unfortunate. And even if you're like, they don't have the supporters. If there's players in between you and the Woodland Alliance, they they might do something. They might They'll do supporter ping pong to yeah, make it happen. Exactly. They will purposefully feed the Woodland Alliance supporters to blow you up because the Woodland Alliance, it doesn't cost them to blow you up. They're going to blow up the clearing right, regardless. Right. So, yeah. So, okay, we've made it out of the opening. We've mm-hmm. explored three or four ruins. Uh, oh, do we need to explore all four ruins? I would say most of the time. I, I just feel like unless you can show me something that's better than a point and an item for just exhausting your torch, unless you're using that torch for something else, like you might as well get all four items. Like I said, Harrier probably could be more efficient than getting that, but most Vagabonds, it's worth a slip and an explore. What do you yeah, think, Yeah, I'd say there's occasionally some strategic value in leaving the ruin on the map. Oh, right, to, right. To stifle a building slot. Yeah. Um, that can be... Because, you know, in exploring, you not only get the item and the point, which is great, but you do open up a building slot on the map, which can be... Um, you know, giving a bit of an advantage to a faction that can use that. Is it also like in uh, games where the Vagabond's going to run away with it early, they probably just don't bother with all the ruins because they have a combination of all the other things in their Well, sites, that's the thing. Right? If you've got great explore RNG mm-hmm. and you get all the items you need, yeah. and you know that the third ru- or the, you know, the fourth ruin has like a bag or something yeah. that you don't even Who need, cares? like right. you spend that torch doing your faction ability right. and... Uh, don't even worry about it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it can stifle other factions. If that last one is a boot, and you are one of the faction or one of the vagabond classes that started with two boots, then yeah, you you might be able to let that go, and it might be doing uh, more harm to the cats than that boot would be doing good for you. So, I, I think that's a good thing to keep in mind, Kyle. You can kind of bottleneck certain clearings. Yeah, um, I think about like Texas on the autumn map is a two clearing. Or, I'm sorry, is a two-building slot clearing, uh, but one of which is covered by a ruins at the beginning of the game. So if you're in the kind of situation where the last one to explore is Texas and it has some, like, you know, lesser item, maybe leave it shut so that uh, factions are forced to, like, come to blows over who's going to be there. Uh, you can, you can like, raise the temperature between the other factions by uh, leaving that ruins in place. Awesome. Hmm. All right, so then what I think that the main moment that happens that transitions us out of the early game and into the mid-late game is going hostile. When we choose to go hostile with a faction. Because the game is never the same. You want to make sure to aid that faction before you go hostile with them. 
It doesn't have to be multiple times, but you might as well aid them one time before that source of points is forever going to be shut off to you. Um, I just played a couple of games on digital, and these are not indicative of good games because I went allied with the cats on turn three. <laughs> um, it was Whoa. insane, Whoa. and I I ended the game in I, I inefficiently ended the game in six turns. <laughs> I could have, if I was smarter about it, I might have been able to do it in five. Jeez. It, because I was just able to get allied and move the cats all the way and then go attack them. And that's the whole point. The whole seesaw of the Vagabond is how much you're their friend and how much points you can get from being their friend. And as soon as that's not more points than you can get from killing them, you switch. Mm-hmm. And that switch is going to be, I think, after you've explored the ruin items, most likely, unless somebody just leaves things vulnerable and really teases you into doing it early, right? And then... We're kind of forever on the hunt for clearings with cardboard and not a lot of warriors from yeah. from here on in, in the game. We are slipping and killing. And then crafting to supplement some points and give us some HP, as well as questing if it's convenient. The, the exact point at which you flip from um, being a friend of the table to being an absolute murder machine yeah. <laughs> is a little different for each class interestingly enough and i think a lot of it has to do with mobility actually more than points gap pretty much anytime you're in double digits points as the vagabond is a great time to go hostile with a faction with a lot of cardboard but certain vagabonds want to wait a little bit and kind of slow roll it um so that they have like enough stuff to like make the most of going hostile i think of like the ranger as a great example of a faction that seems like you'd want to go hyper aggressive really early but in fact you may need to wait like an extra turn or even two uh before going hostile so that you have enough boots and bags to like make it worth your while um because going hostile really early like we mentioned it costs an extra boot to move into a clearing with hostile warriors and if you're just stuck slipping one clearing at a time, um, even even if you start really early, you're like most of the time factions can like see you coming and just kind of get out of the way, and uh, you know you're you're not going to be getting that much infamy points uh, for the end of the game. So timing is kind of everything here. And we were talking about this on the the Woodland War Machine Discord, but there is a little bit of an art to timing it just right. Uh, for when you go hostile. Yeah, and and one thing I didn't mention is you should have two swords when going hostile. It's not worth it to have one sword. Doing one damage is not enough to change your relationship to that faction, but two battles for two damage each, and especially if something's undefended and you're getting double points for it, that can already be worth it. So you got to have that second sword before we're going hostile. To, to get into a little bit of a fine point here, you go you go hostile with a faction anytime you remove one of their warriors. It doesn't have to be from battle. It can right. be from a crossbow. Or it can be from torching a clearing. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that will make you hostile with that faction. It, it could be from an ambush, too. Yeah. So there's, like, a lot of ways to, like, go hostile. And it could be a reason to hold on to that ambush early in the game. I mean, unless you're undefended, in which case you got to use that right away. <laughs> right. I wrote here, choose your victims wisely because you have to hurt the player most likely to stop you first and then pursue the easy points for the end. The idea of 
um, once we got our swords and we're ready to do it. Again, if there's a juicy target with a, like six points on the board, just take it. Ignore this advice. But what I'm saying is, is you should find like, hey, the molds are probably going to be the ones that are going to come after me. And if you can set them back a few turns so that they have to spend their turns rebuilding and are going, I need to rebuild and push that responsibility to the rest of the table, then that is a great situation for you. So you're saying go after the military factions? I think so, yeah. The, the, yeah, the ones most likely to come and check you. Yeah, I, I would say moles, birds, cats should be your first targets, most likely, uh, to try to keep the, the table from... You know, because if they 3v1 you, but it's just crows and woodland alliance and the lizards left over, then there's not going to be much of a check that can happen. All right. So we've made our way into the middle game. We've gone hostile with the right faction and stopped them from stopping us. Yeah. Uh, now we're moving towards the end game. What's like the the kind of like threshold that we're looking for to like make a big end game play? I think it's pretty big. I think you can do it if you're at anywhere between 21 and 24 points. I think you can manage those final points on a turn, depending on the board state, of course. If there's like a lot of cardboard that's left over, you can go 9, 10, 12 points in a turn if if it's n- if the situation's bad uh, for yeah. most of the table. Just from swords. Like right. three swords can get you a crazy amount of points. Oh, so many. Yeah. Even if you use three swords to do three battles and you roll, let's say, a two on each of those, and you're just taking out warriors, that's six points, which is that minimum threshold of 24 points. That's like insane. And so. then you even have, like, you know, stuff left over to, like, quest and all that. Mm-hmm. Or, like, you should just do, you should just quest first and then just spend those swords battling it out. Right, right. Like, hmm. yeah, there's a lot of ways to get, like, nine points in a big swing turn as yeah. the Vagabond. Kyle, I like how you said that the Vagabond's a little bit point salad, too, because if you're approaching your final turn, you should really math it out. You should think, and good point, Kyle, the reference, you should quest first. You should do all the things you have to do before you go into the battles, right? We want the certain points for certain, and then the battle points uh, at the end, because also we're going to be damaging these items as we take damage, so we can exhaust them for their thing, and then we can damage them for our hit points, so... Uh, that is the order in which we want to pull off that big final turn. And it's just so, like, such a nice feedback loop that the Vagabond gets points from attacking. Like, to me, that's the most, like, war game yeah. flavored point scoring mechanism is, like, yeah, you battle stuff and just get points for doing that. Because, like, you're actively hurting other players' engines, other players' ability to win the game, and just gaining points for doing so. Like... It's uh, the Vagabond is so powerful, you guys. <laughs> yeah. In terms of holding on to things for this big final turn, honestly, it's more important to hold on to your action economy. It's just more important to not like exhaust everything the, on the penultimate turn so that you're so that you have enough juice left in the tank to to actually do it. Maybe you hold on to something to craft at the end. Honestly, maybe not because having an item in your pack might be worth using it on a quest as well on the turn before. So you don't have to worry as much about hanging on to things, especially in your hand, but making sure you have the action economy to pull off the big final turn. Yeah. Kind of two points about that, actually. So one is on your big final turn, if you're taking damage or like before your final turn, if you're taking damage, feel free to damage like 
important bags or whatever right. because the the window that checks whether you pitch items at the end of the uh, uh, you know, the window for checking that is at the end of your turn so like if you start your turn with a damaged bag like and it's your last turn like who cares <laughs> it's right. never gonna you're never gonna get to the point where you check that and i've seen this strategy emerging lately where players will exhaust like all of their items on a big turn and then slip into the forest in preparation for the big final turn. Yeah. 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 Definitely. We didn't really talk about, uh, you know, coming out of the forest because so much of that is not in your control when you get sent to the forest. But yeah, that is a good point, Kyle. Maybe the turn before the turn before the turn, you go all out, cause everyone to hit you, you slip in and then you go for it at the end. I think, uh, yeah, assuming the rhythm of the game is on your side, I I think that can work really well. Yeah, and it lets you kind of get uh, an ability to like refresh everything so that you're going into that final turn with like the maximum available actions, you know? Uh, sometimes I see Vagabonds like limp into that last turn with like they're refreshing, you know, three items <laughs> yeah. and just kind of making it work like based on luck. But, you know, it can be possible if you are coming out of the forest to just have a mega turn that no one can do anything about. All right. So let's talk about the things to watch out for with the Vagabond, like our weaknesses. And there's only two. And one of them's just an idea. And yeah. that <laughs> idea- I, I like to phrase this as the playing the Vagabond is like surviving in the desert. You got to prepare for two things. You got to prepare for heat and you got to prepare for thirst. Ooh, I like this. Yeah. Tell me about this. So let's start with thirst. This one's very simple. You need tea. Yeah. <laughs> if you get denied tea, you're going to have a hard game as the vagabond. It's I don't think you really can win. rough. Yeah. It's going to be very difficult. But there's three cards that craft tea in the game. There's three copies of that card. Uh, so if your opponents are very smart, they will keep them in hand jail. They will not craft them <laughs> until later in the game when they can just like maximize the points. Because honestly, like even if a vagabond gets tea, it can be too late. Right. You know, a, a vagabond with tea on turn five or six is way less scary than a vagabond with tea on turn one. Looking right. at you, thief. Yeah. But it's very tempting to craft that tea. I get it. The other thing to prepare for is heat. Yeah. The Vagabond is a notorious figure and will get attacked. And uh, <laughs> the only way to really stop the Vagabond is to send them to the forest a lot of times. So you got to prepare for that heat. And the way to prepare for it is to make deals early, right? Use that table talk to your advantage and to dance the dance, to land on good clearings where you're likely to be left alone or where your opponent's ability to send you to the forest is really limited you know if the cats only have one cat there like you can you can soak one hit usually as the vagabond that's going to be fine to mitigate the heat you got to find the oases (laughs) (laughs) and literally those are the only weaknesses i can think of in the entire faction it's so true because like (laughs) and one of them is just the fact that you're so good that people want to hit you (laughs) it's literally there's a little bit of rng with the starting items from yeah. the ruins and there's a little bit of rng with the quests yeah. and like the cards you draw from the first quest right but everything else is like player controlled right. so like in theory you should be like having a great game almost no matter what yeah and um, except for like the level of heat and the level of thirst right um but let's talk a little bit about the factions that you're gonna be playing against as the vagabond uh let's start with the cats yeah I, I said that just like on Survivor, our best shot at an ally is to find the player who needs our help. 
All right. We need to find the person who's at the bottom of the totem pole, and we need to be like, I'll be your friend. <laughs> um, and there are many ways the Vagabond can help the cats, all right? Bird cards, removing ruins, or dealing with another faction, all right? All of these things are great bargaining chips that the Vagabond has to give to the cats, and the cats are happy that to take any one of these things. At least I would be as a cats player. Dealing with a sympathy or with a plot is... One of the best ways to show friendship towards the cats and one of the best ways to solidify a bond with them early, uh, which might be very helpful. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, it can be hard to convince cats not to harm you because uh, they are everywhere. And that enemy, if you go hostile with the cats early, it can make it hard for you to move around the board. So that is a thing, unless you're hairier, of course. Uh, but the cats, notably, are very easy to aid because they are everywhere on the board. So early in the game, it's super, super easy to get that point. I feel like I've, every Vagabond game that I've played that has the cats in it, I've gotten a point from aiding them. It's just something you have to do. Yeah. So, like, try and make it worth your while by getting a deal. But <laughs> honestly, you're going to get that point no matter what. Yeah. Uh, birds. We talked about this on our birds episode. There's not a ton of interaction with the Vagabond and the birds. The ruins really don't do much for the birds unless there was already a building in that clearing or whatever. Um, don't give them a bird card. Is that, are we all in agreement there? Probably. Probably. Don't give them a I bird card. I mean, you card. could threaten that to hold it over the table or something. Or if the birds are in a tough position, you need them to get strong so that you right. can get some help. Like, sure, 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 the other sure. two factions. Yeah, that's true. So it's in a way like playing as the vagabond, like you can give a leg up to a faction and oh, like, yeah. Never underestimate the power of, like, rebalancing the board I think, by proxy. I think that's what the Vagabond was kind of intended to do by design, right? Was to have that interaction of, like, can help anybody. It doesn't happen much in the game as we've seen it played in our meta, right? I mean, we don't see it consistently, I should say. Well, I don't know. Right. It is like, I'm helping you, but I'm helping you in the least helpful way I can because I'm just trying to get a point for it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, really. I'm it's... not going to give you a bird card unless it's kind of the only card I have or I'm making a specific deal. Right. It's less right? I'm helping you so much as here's a benefit for me helping myself <laughs> to your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I like to claim this, uh, especially in terms of like, there's a specific situation with the ranger attacking the keep on turn one, kind of like a griefing strategy. I like to say that that's a bad idea because you want the cats to be a little bit strong. You want them to be able to kind of buffer against the other factions so that you don't get um, bullied as hard. That other factions have things to worry about mm -hmm. other than the vagabond. Right. <laughs> and so in that interest, like making sure that the cats are propped up a little bit, you're mm -hmm. like helping this like dying empire basically. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and hoping that that will like forestall your doom yeah. a, a couple of turns. You're like, I just useful. repaired a shed, but maybe you could use some aid. <laughs> Kyle, what about the Woodland Alliance? The Vagabond's interacting with the Woodland Alliance. It's actually kind of interesting because the when the Vagabond attacks the Woodland Alliance's tokens, that doesn't make them go hostile. So there's kind of an interesting interaction there. Can you think of uh, anything else that uh, Vagabond and Woodland Alliance have? Yeah, there's kind of two two ways to look at it. One is that cleaning up sympathy is like a favor to the board mm -hmm. or a favor to a specific faction that you can leverage. Mm -hmm. Two is that any Vagabond with a crossbow is the mortal enemy of Woodland Alliance players everywhere. And in fact, the best thing to do is to just crossbow one Woodland Alliance warrior. And then all those sympathy tokens are worth two points for the rest of the game. Oh, That's their main scoring mechanic and they're going to be everywhere. So like... 
you can just farm tokens for points for the rest of the game. And like, yeah, basically you can do it for free since they're largely undefended. Um, at the cost of one sword, you're getting two points. Like that's a great value. I would recommend going hostile with the Woodland Alliance as early as possible in all games. Yeah. Really? Um, yes. Well, hundred percent. Because the the downside is whenever you move into a clearing with enemy warriors, and the Woodland Alliance only has warriors in two or three clearings. Eventually, but they have yeah. sympathy everywhere. Right. There's almost no downside, and. Uh, suppressing the Woodland Alliance is definitely a service to the table. So, like, doing that, you can form an alliance really early. It's just win-win all the way. So, like, anytime the Woodland Alliance is in the game, prey on them <laughs> as the Vagabond. <laughs> they are such easy pickings. I know how much it must hurt your heart to say that, so I appreciate you being forced. It does a little bit, although knowing that, because that's kind of the, like, raw calculation that you can do, knowing that... Um, it's sometimes possible to make a deal with a Woodland Alliance player. Right. Or to, like, leave a very scary sympathy alone. Well, I mean, yeah, the Woodland Alliance player, like, needs all the help they can get at the top of the game, right? As we've discussed a bajillion times, is that they have no presence on the board at the start, so... Right. Uh, I mean, there's not really a lot they can do to that's you, the, Yeah, like, that's I, the thing. They're hamstrung with their very options. Very few games is the Woodland Alliance going to, like, muster a force and come after the Vagabond, unless things are going really bad. I've seen you do it, guys. <laughs> I have to sometimes. Like, <laughs> someone has yeah, to. Yeah, Kyle is the exception to many rules, I feel, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're not going to go on this too much because I know that we could do a whole episode on the Vagabond versus Vagabond interaction. I just wanted to point oh, out that yes. this is really weird because it's the only faction that we have to worry about interacting with itself. Yeah. Um, we're not talking about self-doubt. We're talking about another Vagabond, right? That's correct. Yeah, not just the inner voices that tell the vagabonds. You are not good your enough. own worst enemy. <laughs> <laughs> so two vagabonds in the game can get really weird. Um, also, because like in a four-player game, that means the board's gonna be pretty empty because half of the factions are just two guys. <laughs> um, All the ruins have two items. Oh, you guys, this is a whole thing. I lo- oh, this is a good a good yeah. topic. Uh, they they're in competition for the quests. So that can get really interesting. The quest turnover will be more. And yeah, like you said, Kyle, you when you explore ruins, you look at two and you choose one. Now, you can't like take two ruined swords. You have to get one of each like you would in a normal game. But you get to have more choice over when you get those, which we've talked about for several of these Vagabond classes can mean a huge deal. Yeah. Just knowing where that bag is if you're playing against the ranger can be, like, awesome. Right. Otters. This is weird. You can buy services from the otters as the vagabond by exhausting items before they would become refreshed. So you have to have had items that you didn't use last turn that you then exhaust, and then the otters player puts uh, meeples from their supply into their uh, payments box, and then you refresh your items. The way I've seen this done is that on turn one or turn zero, um, it gets to the Vagabond's bird song. They exhaust a number of items to like get a card or whatever. Uh, You can't get mercenaries. That's the the one um, service that you can't purchase as the Vagabond. Uh, But you get cards or riverboats or whatever. uh, And then immediately refresh those items. The otters put two of their own meeples in the payments box and, uh, you you know you go on as the vagabond with <laughs> an excellent on. card in hand. There's there's no way someone bought riverboats turn one. 
Probably not. Unless no. you're on the lake map or something weird. I guess. But even then, like, why wouldn't you just start in a good exactly. forest? Like, you start somewhere and then you slip. So, like, I can't imagine a situation where river boats is going to help turn one. The one situation where I do see this as being, like, pretty useful, though, is if the table is agreeing to starve the right. otters and it gets around to you and you're like, okay, well, I'm just going to exhaust a couple of items. The otters will feed themselves like they would anyway. Right. right. Um, yeah, with, they get uh, no extra benefit. Right. Right. And I just get a, a bonus card or something. Yeah, that's um, a good call, actually. Yeah, so there, there's a way to kind of like do a little gamesmanship there with the with the otters. But largely, I think the interaction is persuading them to not attack you early in the game. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, the ruins do tend to line up with the rivers in, in some ways. Um, not on every map, but like on the lake map, for sure, all the ruins are along the river. On the uh, winter map, half of them are along the river auto map half of them are along the river the, yeah there's a lot of interplay there so early in the game the otters can really rain on your parade if you uh <laughs> interact with them poorly the lizard cult uh will gladly take your aid all right <laughs> let me tell you as an ambassador of the lizard cult we'd gladly take any vagabond aid you want to give us um and of note, the lizards are not as big of a threat to you as they are to most other factions. Their big conspiracies like Sanctify don't affect you. You don't have buildings. Convert, where they change the warriors. You don't have warriors, so that doesn't affect you. They could crusade. They could move and then attack you. But that's the case with any other faction, and the lizards are going to be doing it far less than other people. The lizards, and are they going to waste their battle on a or on a battle that's not going to get them any points? I don't know. I've done it as the lizards to just show the table, hey, I'm playing the game too. I hit the vagabond. Why don't you? You know. Whoa, that's a nice little poem you got there. Good for you. Well, the cult is good at poetry. <laughs> uh, moles. There's probably less interaction with the moles, the better, is what I put. Um, the moles don't need your aid. You don't want to aid the moles. That'll just help them too much. Uh, unless they've got items, in which case, maybe consider it. Unless they've taken over the game. If the moles are in control of the game, which they can, you can be like a, another member of the table and the heat's not on you and it can be great. You can go in there and deal with the moles. But they are also probably one of the factions most likely to punch you. They will have the extra warriors and actions to come after you and do their job for the table. So Yeah, along with the birds and the cats, the moles are definitely a faction to worry about uh, getting punched. Um, one thing I will say about the moles and the lizards, which is really nice, is that they often reveal their hand in order to take Ooh, actions. Yeah. So anytime someone's keeping uh, a particular card away from the vagabond, if they're the moles or lizards, you see exactly what's being kept. So a card like Swap Meat, for example, you now have like a more uh, good information about who to target with that kind of thing. Right, or the um, thief ability I, could be really good against those factions. I was just going to say, like, playing the thief against the lizards and the moles is actually kind of interesting because they are showing off what they're trying to keep away from you. Right. Um, uh, Corvids here. All I said, the notable interactions that snares aren't affected by slip. So even the right. big interaction where I, I literally, for a moment when I was writing this guide, I went, oh no, what if somebody snared a vagabond and then they didn't have enough swords to take out the thing? And then and then I'm like, oh no, slip, you can just slip out of it. So uh, the Corvids can be a good source of cardboard points as well because they are drop-in tokens that are lightly defended. You might have to take an extra hit, but once we're totally online, that won't be an issue. 
And kind of similar to the Woodland Alliance, like the Corvids tend to surround their uh, tokens in low numbers. So having a crossbow in play can be very scary for a crow, a crow's player. Um, they need to, uh, you know, be next to the tokens that flip over to score points. So uh, having just even having a crossbow, even if you don't use it against them, forces the Corvids to like stock up on warriors. And uh, that can kind of slow down their engine a little bit as well. So you can apply pressure without even doing anything as the Vagabond. It's great. (laughs) And let's move on to our map thoughts. Um, Autumn map. This one seems pretty straightforward, Kyle. What do you write here? Always start in the middle forest. Don't be cute. That's all I have to say (laughs) about the Autumn map. We've all played on it. The Autumn map is a great distribution for ruins. Uh, You get a nice little track to move around. I think the auto map is actually really nice for questing because uh, the balanced suits tend to be very favorable for efficient um, item usage so that you can like slip around. Usually from any clearing, you can slip to any other suit, which makes it really good for questing. And uh, so I I tend to like the auto map for some of the craftier, questier factions like the Tinker or the Adventurer. And uh, Winter Map is notable because of its big northern forest, right? This is, uh, I don't know, Garrick made a great uh, visualization a long time ago about how Slip really doesn't get you anything on the Autumn Map in terms of extra movement. Any forest that you could slip into, you could just slip into a clearing and then move from it. But the Winter Map is a huge exception because of that northern forest. You can do a move that usually would be like three moves with a single slip and a boot. Yeah, a slip, one slip and two boots on the winter map can get you from one corner to the opposite corner. Wow. Whoa. That's pretty nuts. Yeah. Which the sounds crazy yeah. until you play as the Harrier and you realize you can just teleport <laughs> anywhere and that doesn't even matter. Yeah. But you're right, though, that that top forest in the winter map is just super insane. It's connected to so many things, which is why I think that a strategy of staying towards the center as the Vagabond on the winter map is actually really good because it makes everyone's calculations go crazy. Um, If you're along the river in one of those central clearings, at any point you can just slip into the forest and then go and like hit one of those weak northern clearings. I just think that's a good strategy for keeping your opponents on their toes, forcing them to play a little more conservatively. And uh, the winter map is also really nice because the ruins are very close together. Yeah. Very easy to get around. Um, Great little horseshoe. Yeah, it's a nice little horseshoe. So yeah, I think the winter map is very, very good for the Vagabond. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the map that's not that good for the Vagabond, the lake map. Why is this one the toughest for the Vagabond, Kyle? Yeah, this one's notoriously difficult. It's just because the ruins are very far apart and they're separated by the lake. The the one fortunate thing is that the forests along the lake um, are pretty useful so that it's, you know, if you start with a boot, start with a boot if you can. Like, it seems like the Harrier would be a good choice. You can just teleport across the lake. But remember, you have to ex- to uh, exhaust the torch in order to move all the way across there. So it's going to take an extra turn to explore, even. Um, start with a boot. That way you can slip into the forest during birdsong and then move out into a, uh, an adjacent clearing to explore. That's, like, the best way to make use of the lake map. And it really punishes bad item rng in the ruins uh you can you can really stall out quite easily as the vagabond on the lake map even with a good starting set of items so 
Uh, it, you really dance the dance, make those alliances early. Uh, lake map is very challenging. Yeah. You have the mountain map listed here as a romp for the Vagabond. Um, oh, yeah. I, I just want to say before we get into the mountain map, the mountain map has really weird forests. And here's the definition of a forest is anything that's totally enclosed by paths. So even if you see some cute little farin, uh drawn trees elsewhere in the map, it's only where the paths totally enclose something is a forest. Yes. And there's a ton of those on the mountain map and they become more and more as the paths get uncovered. I think they, I think they're separate. They're separate forests, even when covered when, the Oh, you're covered. right. You're right. You're right. You're so right about that. Uh, what I, what I say here is that traveling by forest in the mountain map is incredibly cumbersome and slow. Yeah. Um, and it's usually not that useful. Um, so what that means is you're going to be in clearings a lot of the time. Uh, in terms of your movement. So pick them wisely. Fortunately, the mountain map tends to open up more and more as the game goes along, and it's relatively easy for the Vagabond to um, spend a card to open up those paths, as long as you're, like, nearby. Uh, in a game against the Vagabond, other factions will do well to, like, open up those paths that are close to the Vagabond so they don't score those points. And the Vagabond can't rule the pass, uh, so, there, you know, there's no chance of extra points there. However... With that center of gravity being present, the Vagabond can easily just dance around that clearing uh, without attracting as much attention and can easily, easily just like scoot around and kill everything. So I call the mountain map a romp for the Vagabond because they can lead other factions on a merry chase uh, into clearings that are very hard to get to. It's interesting. I, I like what you said that the pass is almost like a distraction. It's like this other thing. Usually we're focused on the vagabond and because we can score points with the pass, that's almost a distraction that the vagabond needs to win. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you kind of don't even have to care about that as the vagabond. You can just right. like go and <laughs> disrupt everybody else's engine while they're squabbling over one. Clear. <laughs> right. Love it. Wow. Guys, we did it. We did it. Wow. Well, we half did it. We are doing at least one other episode on the vagabond soon yeah we'll have to figure out uh how to organize the next step of this crazy conversation including all the analysis of the comparisons of these vagabonds and the meta of them i didn't even say like why the vagabond is the most broken faction and all of its like super advantages because i'm saving that for the meta one right okay? right i think there's a I, lot this was all restraint for me <laughs> on this episode yeah there's a lot more to say for sure um but yeah. We're, uh, we've covered what we need to cover for today. Anybody we want to thank, Sam? Oh, yes. Let's thank Marcus the Couch, Garrick S., Justin K., Germ Curry, Shouts to Nebuchadnezzar, Fugless, Just 10, Fancy Zeeling, Aquaman Boss, Kroomster, Prestane, Fantastic Mr. Trickster, Marquise de Jules, and Opie's <laughs> Funeral. Thank you, guys. Thank you all so much. And if you want to join in on the conversation on the Good Time Society Discord on the Woodland War Machine channel, please do so. We always need your suggestions and your help. And come join us for a game of Root. Yeah, for sure. We're organizing them there and uh, also on the Woodland Warriors Discord as well. Uh, more and more games are getting played every week. So come on and party with us and show us how broken this faction is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope that this episode, if nothing else, has uh, given you some ideas for how to uh, play the different phases of the game as the Vagabond. And uh, I, yeah, I really would love to see some of these like kind of creative approaches 
kind of filter out into the world. And um, yeah, good luck out there. I mean, this is is considered one of the stronger factions in the entire game. And uh, I hope that this episode we've like been able to cover some of the reasons why it's so strong. And play with some of those other character classes that people neglect, right? The ones that we've talked about today and explored with other options because maybe you'll be underestimated and that's what you need right now. (laughs) Right. Right. We'll get into this in the meta, but everyone knows how to play against the Tinker. But do they know how to play against the Vagrant, Jake? No, no one knows how to play against a wide-eyed <laughs> Jake lunatic like that. Jake is giving us the craziest eyes right now. <laughs> what are we talking about next week? So next week we're going to be talking about uh, the game above the game involving the Vagabond. That's the table meta as it has been growing in the community. And we're not alone for this discussion. We're going to be joined by two very special guests from one of the podcasts that inspired this podcast. Space Cats! Peace Turtles! That's right, Matt and Hunter are coming on to talk about everyone's favorite punching bag, the Vagabond. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it'll be great. They've run so many great tournaments and definitely have a good uh, handle on how people view the Vagabond, especially in competitive play. So it'll be great to have them on to discuss that. Yes, we've mentioned Space Cats on this podcast many a times, but if you somehow uh, have like tuned that phrase out, uh, I will put a link to their awesome Twilight Imperium-based podcast in our description. They also do special episodes about Root as well as Dune, a a game that they covered for a little bit a few years ago. Thank you so much to them for inspiring us to get started on this. And thank you, Sam and Kyle, for delving into some one of the craziest factions of any game like not just of root like this one has so much intricacy and like so many options, right? Like every expansion makes them more complex because they get new characters. It is an entire faction of exceptions. <laughs> like, so mind-bending to just like see their chapter in yeah. the rules book and just be like, I give up. I was like pleasantly <laughs> quiet during this episode because I'm just so overwhelmed by options. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I'm excited to take off the bandages uh, off my head from beating it against the wall all week to write this guy. Great job, Sam. And cool uh, quest analysis. I never had looked at them quite that way. I love the patterns you found. Sam, any nominations for best? Best quest? Uh, best quest is definitely give a speech because we've we've started saying that you have to give a speech. <laughs> when you complete the quest, give a speech, you must give a speech. Yeah, that's the new meta. Uh, so that is my favorite quest. I love that one. I love that one. I guess what I can say is... Root, 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 root.